So, good morning. I'm trying a new image out on you this morning. <laughs> These are indeed my regular preaching trousers. This is one of my regular preaching shirts. But a few people commented at Alpha that they'd never seen me wearing a tie. So I thought that given that I'm speaking this morning about first impressions, uh, and I judge from your laugh that it was a successful first impression, I actually just went out with the children to put this jacket and tie on. Uh, and one of the children in Croatia got quite excited because they thought I was coming out there. I am thus the first preacher to simultaneously disappoint both Croatia and the congregation <laughs> on the same morning. So we're looking this morning at first impressions. And when you're six foot five, frankly, it's quite easy to make a first impression. People come up to me in the street randomly and just pronounce as if I would be unaware of it. You're very tall. <laughs> I'm never quite sure to respond because apparently... Uh, if we're playing this game of naming people's major characteristic, you're not allowed to reply, thank you, you're very fat, old, <laughs> ugly, or rude. Apparently, tallness is the only thing that you're allowed to shout at people publicly in the street, as if I was unaware, or as if perhaps I'd left the house at four foot six, and suddenly, on meeting this, my lucky little leprechaun, I suddenly have become, without realising it, six foot five. I am painfully aware of my altitude. It follows me wherever I go, and despite the fact I spend my entire time trying to be invisible, trying to blend in, I fail. It is hard when you look like this to make the right first impression. One first impression you might make from, from me, for example, could get you into a lot of trouble. If there is ever an inter-URC basketball league... <laughs> Do not be fooled. If the last two people to be picked on your team, you have the choice between Charles Martin... <laughs> between Charles Martin... and me. Ten times out of ten, pick Charles. Because while I have every natural advantage, I have zero natural ability. Sometimes I make an unintended physical first impression. If you sit in front of me on an aeroplane you will have a physical impression of my kneecaps in your kidneys for eight and a half hours. And you'll have a very surprising first impression when you put your hand under your seat to see what it is beneath there to find out that it's my toes. People always squeal two hours into the flight. They think, what is that under there? And I just wriggle my feet and they go, ah! It's quite remarkable. They've got four pairs of shoes underneath their chair. No, two pairs, four shoes. Sometimes... My impression makes people really, really angry. Some people think they've got fantastic seats at the cinema or at the theatre or a concert or even just Mike this morning thought he was sitting pretty in church and then I arrived. And nothing spoils the enjoyment of my popcorn more than hearing pe people muttering darkly behind me in the cinema. If I have a family behind me, two adults, three small children, there are 120 different permutations that they could sit in. That's basic mathematics. And they will try all of them after I sit down, muttering the entire time. But basic physics says that at least two of them are not going to see anything at all. So I would like to take this opportunity to apologise to the entire back seven rows of the United Reformed Church. This is the screen on which everybody else can see the words projected. You can just see the back of my head. Uh, this is the music group you've been listening to all of these years. Not much to look at, but they sound pretty good. Uh, this is the pulpit, uh, where Charles stands, so at least the first four rows can see him. 
difficult to make the right first impression, but importantly, I don't need any of this anymore because your first impression of me was actually formed in the first 30 milliseconds of me appearing. You see, within that first brief period, your amygdala hijacked your brain. The unconscious part of your mind took control, and all of your senses went into just one thing, analyzing an impression of me. Your unconscious brain takes over completely in that moment. Now, the amygdala, the amygdala is a very special part of the brain. It sits as part of the limbic system, way down there in the primitive primal part of the brain, that fight-or-flight mechanism. You have just 30 milliseconds to make an opinion of me and to assess the situation. At that point, this very primitive part of the brain that's responsible for your motivation, for your behavior, for your emotion, and your long-term memory kicks in. And the moment that surprised you saw me wearing a tie, your limbic system wrote that in as a long-term memory. So I don't need to wear the tie anymore because your brain's going to keep referencing that. Now, if it's the first time you've ever seen me preach, and for most people it will be, because those who've heard me before will have stayed at home this morning. But if it's the first time you've seen me preach, then you will now think that I wear a tie. If you've seen me before and you know that I'm naturally scruffy, you now just don't trust me. Because your long-term memory remembers the fact that I'm scruffy, and you won't overwrite that impression, you'll simply stop trusting me. So this morning we're looking at first impressions. And psychologists say that our first impressions are not actually a single impression, but we actually form two of them. Social psychologist Amy Cuddy writes that in research across all cultures and genders and ages, 80 to 90% of our overall first impression is answering just two questions. We're judging, number one, how warm and trustworthy the person is. That's trying to answer what are this person's intentions towards me. And we're also asking ourselves, how strong and competent is that person? That's really about whether or not they have the competence, the capability, and the authority of enacting, of carrying out those intentions. And these are the two questions that I want us to consider about both John the Baptist and the first impression that John the Baptist gives us of the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. What are this person's intentions towards us? How strong and competent is that person? So would you turn to Matthew 3? And we're going to start at verse 4, because John certainly knows how to make a first impression. Verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't think even in two days or two hours you're going to remember the details of my preaching trousers. But 2,000 years later, all four Gospels record John the Baptist. He's recorded in books of history, and he certainly makes a first impression. But everything about verse 4, everything about John's first impression, isn't quite what it seems. Camel's hair could be woven into a coarse form of cloth. And today, the only place you can buy it is in Knightsbridge, is in places like Harrods, because it's really, really rare and expensive. But in John's time, writing that in verse 4 meant just one thing. All they're saying is that John is poor. He's too poor to afford a wool garment. 
And saying he wore a leather belt just means that because people could only wear basic cloths and, and overalls, the only way to augment, to sort of tart up what you were wearing, was to wear an ornate waistband. So John shuns both fashion and status and simply wears the mark of a poor person, a basic, humble leather belt. His diet couldn't be much more basic either. He scavenges for things that actually scavenge on the land themselves, for locusts. You don't farm locusts, he just finds them. And locusts are the poorest of all the kosher foods, the lowest of the low. Again, only a poor person would eat locusts. He doesn't even own any bees or purchase the honey. He lives outside society and beyond the economy. So everything about verse 4 highlights that John is poor, penniless, and powerless. John is a nobody who lives nowhere and owns nothing. Yet look at verse 5. In verse 5, everyone who is anyone from everywhere that matters pours into the desert to see John. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Verse 7, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to see him. We'll hear more about them later. And even Jesus speaks of John in Luke 7, 28, saying, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So what does it tell us about God that he should use to choose John? Somebody who does nothing to point towards himself, something who owns nothing who has no earthly power, no authority, no financial means at all. And yet God elects John to be the last of the prophets and the first of the disciples, to be that link between Elijah and Isaiah in the Old Testament and to form the central basis of all four Gospels pointing towards the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John may cut a rather striking first impression, physically speaking, but everything about that impression points away from John. It cannot be John that they're coming into the desert to see, because as we've just read, there's nothing for them to see. It must be the message of John. It's not John they're meeting in the desert, it's somebody else. So would you turn back with me to the start of the chapter, and in verse 1, we see the message, and Josh brought it uh, in the children's talk. It's always nerve-wracking when the children's talk is on the same thing as your sermon. I was thinking there, please don't say what I'm going to say, please don't say what You got halfway there, we're okay, there's some left. Verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, verse 2, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, when I was a child, this is the late 70s, early 80s, and I seem to constantly have this cartoonish impression of Christians and the church. There was an image around at the time, do you remember, of a sort of old man in a beard with one of those sandwich boards front and back, saying, The end is nigh, and he would be screaming, Repent, repent, the end is nigh. That's not what John is saying here. That's not the message that was getting people out into the desert. Yes, what he said was to repent for the kingdom of God is near. But the sermon in a sentence is not to eat bugs like it's a bush tucker trial and be good because God may kill you at any moment. We need to reclaim and rediscover the full meaning of repentance. Because when I hear the word repent, I hear, stop it, no, be good, don't say that, don't do that, don't look like that, don't wear that, no, 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 no. That's not what John means with repentance. As we'll see, it can't be all that he means. Yes, to repent does mean to firmly and unequivocally turn your back on the things that would distract you from God, the things that would displease God. Yes, that is what it means. 
But the word repent does not just mean to turn from something. It also means to return to something different. It's like a spring snapping back to its natural place. It doesn't just mean you turn from one thing. It means you return back somewhere, somewhere you already belong. Repentance is not about what you turn away from. The focus, what matters, John's message in the wilderness, is what, or I should say who, we are returning to. We all try to be good. Uh, about 45% of us will try and make a New Year's resolution every year. And this is the week that most of them will fail. These are the top 10 New Year's resolutions for 2013. New Year's resolutions last, on average, statisticians tell us, five to six weeks. If you made it five, you're going today. If you make it to six, you'll still be here next Sunday doing it. But most people fail on the fifth or the sixth week. These are the top 10 uh, New Year's resolutions for 2013. And all of these are good, wholesome, and inspirational ideas. But only 8% of us will succeed. Because trying to be good is hard. Because just turning back on things, even things you want to give up on, is hard. And John says that New Year's resolutions like this won't work. It's not enough to try to be good, to try to turn your back on something you really want to do. What you need to do is want more that which you are turning towards. What you gain must be greater than that which you are giving up. It's not about the rules. It's about the relationship. And we change naturally when we're in relationships. I changed a little bit when I fell in love with Zoe. I changed even more when we got married. I changed more when I had children. I mean, Zoe will tell you that I'm a work in progress, but relationships change me. Because they change my motivation, they change the reward, they change my responsibility, they change my accountability. And when you turn to face God, you naturally put your back on things which would distract you from that relationship. These things are now behind me. I'm not focused on them and turning half away. But when I gain more, then I give up. Then I have a much better chance than 8%. When I focus on the relationship and not on keeping the rules then success isn't based on my willpower, but on God's power. And I'm not constantly asking, well, how good is good enough? Have I kept the rules well enough? We know this to be true, because if John was talking about just being good, just keeping the rules, then the Pharisees would be at the very top of the class. No one refrained from sin more than the Pharisees. They didn't just keep the rules, they then made up extra rules to make sure that they could keep those as well. And then if someone else kept those rules, they'd make up more rules to make sure that they got better and better and better by their own strength and in their own sight and in their own power. And John calls them hypocrites because they've turned only halfway. They've refrained, but they haven't repented. They've turned from sin, but they haven't turned back home. They've relied on their own religion, on their rules and their rituals. In fact, if you uh, read the rest of verse 7 and verse 8, you'll see that John points out that they're not saved by their religion. They're not saved by their nationality. To be saved, they need to understand what John is saying. They need to repent and be baptized. They are relying on their own behavior and their Jewish nationality. But you cannot get to the kingdom of heaven with a clean CRB check and a Jewish passport. It doesn't work like that. 
The kingdom of God is crucial to understanding this. It's not a place or a time, but a condition. It's a condition in which the rulership and authority of God is acknowledged by mankind. A condition in which God's promises can be restored, our relationship fulfilled, and that sin and death will flee. John's cry in the desert is not a call to just be good. It's a call to return home. The kingdom of heaven is not used as a threat, but as a promise to be fulfilled. John invites believers to be baptized. So first they must repent. They must acknowledge that they want to turn, turn away from the things that have distracted them from God, and turn to see God's face fully. And then, and only then, John says, you must be baptized. Now there was a ritual of baptism. The Jews would wash all the time. I kind of think that's probably why I like taking a bath so much. If you were Jewish, you just washed all the time. It wasn't that you never sinned. It was just that you could be cleansed and restored. You would wash your hands three or four times for a meal. Uh, Women would have to bathe every month when they became unclean. Men, if they touched a carcass or ate or, or did the wrong thing, would have to wash just like this in living water in a flowing river. But there was only one Jewish baptism that happened just once in somebody's life, just once, and to wash away all of their sin, all of their prior sin. And that came when a Gentile would convert to Judaism. There was a ritual that said that you made that decision, and then you could wash just once in living water in a stream or a river, and you would take upon yourself the cleansing characteristic of that clean, pure water. The Jewish ritual meant that as you left one community, you could leave behind the stains and the sin and the unclean nature of your prior existence and enter clean into the new community of Judaism. And it's this baptism which John is using to point us towards the saving grace of Christ. He says, first, we repent and restore our relationship with God, and secondly, at that point, and only once we've done that, can we be cleansed of our prior community and prepared to enter the kingdom of God. John is both a forerunner to and a follower of Christ. He looks for us to turn our back on all that distracts and purified by living water to give up all that is past. In Luke 7, verse 29, Luke gives us an aside that talks about these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these people who believed simply by refraining, by turning halfway, by relying on their religious nature and the rights of them as Jewish citizens. Luke 7, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. John was preparing a way in the desert. He was calling people to repent, to recognize that which they should turn from and return in restored relationship to God. He encouraged them to give up and abandon their past sins and to be washed clean in the river of baptism. Yet constantly he pointed that he was only a forerunner of the grace to come, of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so today, we must acknowledge, and it's one thing that I've learnt in Alpha over these last few weeks, is that very often people want to see Jesus very much. 
but it's Christians and the church that get in the way. Too often, the first impression that the world hears about God's inclination towards them is telling them that they need to eat bugs and be good, or God wants them dead. Too often, it's not John that people meet in our churches. It's the Pharisees. And it's scary because you and I are trusted to be the first impression that some people will get, maybe the only impression that some people will get, of Jesus. And I pray that that first impression won't be to remember my preaching trousers. Because if John was on to one thing, it was the fact that he must decrease, that Christ might increase. That we must let nothing get in the way of people seeing and meeting the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about this church being impressive. It's about people being impressed with that first impression of who Jesus is. What does it take to make a first impression? We need to understand somebody's intention towards us. And for too long the church has communicated that God's intention towards them is no, stop it, don't do that, be good. God's first intention is that he loves us and he wants to call us home. We need to get out of the way so that people can see Jesus. All impressions of us must decrease so a lasting, authentic impression of Christ can increase. This is God's authority. This is the kingdom of heaven.